Hello and welcome back once again to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, today marks uh, perhaps the end, the denouement of uh, the story that we have told in this course, uh, Food Toxicology. What we're going to try to do today is uh, give you uh, a sense of the challenges beyond, the challenges of the future, what scientists uh, in the related fields of food toxicology are working on to create a safer and more nutritious food system. Perhaps the best thing that we can do here as we reflect upon uh, the, the course and what we have learned is actually review the course. In this particular uh, segment of your education, what we've tried to do is give you a series of lectures uh, uh, in food toxicology. We started off the course uh, giving you an introduction, uh, an introduction to toxicology, some basic definitions, and then we tried to identify some of the concerns relative to the provision of a safe and nutritious food supply. Uh, when we did this, we tried to give you a little bit of a background on risk assessment and the challenges of risk communication. These are issues that are intimately associated with the development of information associated about toxicants in the human food chain. We followed that lecture with a history of U.S. food regulation. What happened in the past century to give us the uh, law that we have, the Food and Drug Administration, the regulations that mitigate uh, food safety concerns in terms of chemical adulteration of food. We introduced the concepts of toxicology, the core concepts, the jargons about poisons and how, in fact, they may impact the human food chain. Some of these toxins can, in fact, be naturally occurring, but some of them as well can be synthetic. The synthetic ones of most concern or major concern were identified in the next lecture, pesticide residues in food. What we did in that lecture, if you recall, is we tried to review the major categories of in pesticides that are used in agriculture and as well put it in the context of economic poisons that are also used in public health applications. We tried to go through for the first time in this course the uh, regulatory underpinnings of a specific body of law and regulation associated with food. We followed that lecture with an introductory uh, demonstration of the quantal relationships of dose response. We remember that Paracelsus gave us his saying, the dose makes the poison. We looked at these relationships and how toxicologists use these dose response relationships to do risk assessment. We then started a biological journey, the journey in terms of absorption of toxicants as these chemicals at the interface of biology have to cross critical membranes or critical pathways in terms of intoxication. We followed that looking at the distribution and storage of toxicants. Uh, what are systemic effects? What are localized effects of these intoxications? We talked about how the body has the ability to biotransform and eliminate toxicants. We talked about this in the context of naturally occurring toxicants, the wide variety of secondary chemical compounds, especially plant secondary chemical compounds that exist that are in fact potentially broadly toxic at significant concentrations. How have our bodies evolved to be able to modify the toxicity of these chemical compounds was entertained in terms of an understanding of the biotransformation phase one and phase two 
and the enhanced potential for elimination of these toxins from the food supply. We talked about target organ toxicity and how certain chemicals have the ability to target certain cellular processes and biochemical processes to have their over-toxic effects. For example, neurotoxicants affect, in some cases, the concentration of neurotransmitters like cholinesterase inhibitors. This gave us the ability to navigate the different target specificities of particular toxicants. We also did a brief introduction of what happens when toxicants actually change or mess with the molecules of life. We saw this when we examined teratogenesis, mutagenesis, and carcinogenesis as endpoints, endpoints of considerable concern in terms of the manifestations of toxicology. We then looked at the interaction of food and food components with the immune system in a lecture about food allergy. The new developments in uh, our understanding of uh, the immune system in the past several decades has actually allowed us to understand the concept and management of food allergy as well. We then did a lecture on about food intolerance and metabolic disorders. We saw that in fact there are some metabolic disorders that are genetic and we saw that in fact sometimes food intolerance such as lactose intolerance can actually be developed uh, at an early age in children. We then reviewed food additives and food additive safety assessment, the processes, uh, the interaction of food additive safety assessment with the Delaney Clause, how we have navigated that, the scope of practice in terms of food additives, uh, and its relationship to reviewing the toxicological profiles of these chemicals that are added to adjust some function, flavor, or chemical uh, basis of food products. We talked about the toxicology of selected food additives and focused uh, in particular on those food additives that have had a lot of concern in terms of regulatory concern or public media attention in the past few decades. We then approached a very significant issue in terms of food safety and food quality in terms of the public arena, and this is the appearance of genetically modified organisms or GMOs in food products. We talked about this from some of the ramifications in terms of bioethics, but also some of the social concerns in terms of the development of the new food products and the new crops uh, that, in fact, might be the products of GMO and biotech processing. We talked about some of the concerns in terms of the development of allergies and food allergies and the development of potentials for other toxic uh, uh, responses in terms of changing some of the protein levels, changing some of the secondary chemical compounds in some of the plant systems modified by biotechnology. We then did a lecture where we explored food irradiation or cold uh, pasteurization. We tried to give you a little bit of the physical background of the interaction of ionizing radiation, uh, ionizing radiation uh, with the intent to uh, minimize or destroy uh, spoilage bacteria and pathogenic bacteria. We then did uh, a lecture exploring the ecological biochemistry of food. This so-called food ecology, how has, have we essentially grown up with our environment and learning what foods uh, to eat and what foods perhaps are poisonous, those plants and fungi that contain natural toxins. 
We actually followed this with uh, another category of natural toxins. These are toxic mold and the development of mycotoxins. What are some of the concerns in terms of managing mycotoxins uh, in the human food supply? We then explored marine toxins in food. This is often quite colorful, uh, but this is a dangerous uh, area of food. There is lethality associated uh, with marine toxins in food. Quite often these are neurotoxicological and therefore uh, can be potentially crippling in acute exposure, but also have chronic and long-term effects in terms of nervous system, central nervous system function. We are then explored some naturally occurring toxicants and their relationship, their causation relationship to foodborne disease. Some of these have to do with staples in developing countries, uh, processed foods, uh, that need to be foods that need to be processed in terms of minimizing their naturally occurring toxicants sometimes by uh, food processing techniques such as cooking. We explored uh, bacterial uh, pathogenesis from the approach of the chemicals, typically proteins, but sometimes lipopolysaccharides that are associated with bacterial infestations. We saw that we have great concern in terms of survivability of these compounds, particularly endotoxins, in food cooking processes. We may destroy the organism, but we often do not destroy the chemical that the organism produces on its route to pathogenesis. We talked about an issue, an issue of uh, increasing concern, and this is animal drug residues in food the relationship of the regulatory apparatus and veterinary medical practice in terms of animal health uh, maintenance and the provision of animal food products, not only here in the U.S., but internationally, some of the concerns. And we focused on the primary concern that most scientists that analyze this situation uh, are, have, and this is with the development of antibiotic resistance from subclinical, primarily subclinical, uh, dosing of food animals with antibiotics. We talked about uh, then some uh, toxicants that are formed uh, during food processing. We tried to review the top dozen or so uh, toxicants that have, uh, uh, I guess, the majority concern in terms of the past few decades of research in this area. We then did a focus case study on dioxin and related compounds, these lipophilic compounds that have a specific pathway of chlorinated hydrocarbon uh, toxicity and how they have the ability to, uh, because of their lipophilic nature, uh, to reside and enter the human food chain and, and uh, stay there for quite a long time. We then did a risk assessment of lead and arsenic in the human food chain, and then we followed that with mercury in the human food chain and talked about methylmercury and, in fact, how uh, methylmercury, a neurotoxin of considerable stature, uh, has been studied in terms of the diets of individuals that eat large quantities of seafood. Well, this uh, course of study, I think, has prepared you well in terms of your understanding of food toxicology and its relationship to human health, its relationship to the provision of a safe and nutritious uh, food supply. There are some things, though, that are developing uh, beyond what the scope of uh, this particular course things that uh, appear uh, in the present as a part of the frontier of food toxicology. These frontiers include uh, the expanded use of integrated effects, these response spectra 
rather than looking at a single toxic effect in terms of risk assessment. Uh, we always default to lethality, but sometimes it can be a, a, an undesirable clinical endpoint. We have uh, been challenged just developing the basis of toxicological review of chemical compounds on a single effect basis, but perhaps the frontier is coming up with methods and modes of integrating these effects, gathering these responses into syndromes, into response spectrum. We'll need some new approaches as well on the frontier for the examination of the contributions of mixtures of chemicals. We know pretty well in terms of foods that enter the human food chain, the regulated food chain, the actions and activities of single chemicals. We are only now coming up with the generalized approaches to look at additive or synergistic effects of toxicants as well as those that uh, provide for antagonism uh, effects that counter perhaps uh, toxication reactions of other chemicals but also the reactions of other chemicals for nutritional gain. We'll need to become uh, better at this so we can kind of analyze some of the natural flavor complexes that we are increasingly using in food science. We'll need to, in the future as well, develop new biomarkers of intoxication. Uh, quite often what we find is that, that simple animal studies don't give us sufficient information to come up with a credible uh, risk assessment uh, profile for a particular chemical or process. What we knew, need to do, for example, and dioxins have been one of the areas where we've had to actually delve into uh, molecular biology and biochemistry at a very finite level to understand the cellular and molecular relationships of intoxication, we need to develop some new biomarkers uh, so that we can have an assessment of toxicology that is subclinical. We'll need as well to develop some surrogate animal models, uh, rat studies, the backbone, if you will, of human health risk assessment uh, for many decades. Are, have been a, a, a very uh, strong tool in risk assessment and comparative toxicology, but perhaps because of the life cycle of rats and some of the challenges in using that particular species, there are perhaps opportunities to develop these surrogate animal models uh, with lower organisms that have shorter life cycles. These shorter life cycles allow us to look, for instance, at second and tertiary generation effects uh, for example, in amphibian models looking at teratogenesis from particular intoxications. The frontier of food toxicology also uh, will incorporate in silico approaches. In silico is a new term for computer modeling uh, where we do uh, a wonderful uh, database manipulation and modeling of not only organisms but quantitative structure activity relationships of chemicals and particular receptors. As we become smarter, as our models become more robust, we will have in the future uh, uh, direct uh, extrapolations of what is an exciting field today in computer modeling of toxicology. We can use these models uh, in robust fashions for uh, iterative and systems types approaches uh, that allow for an introduction of biological complexity, perhaps that is uh, overly costly and difficult to do in terms of real-life laboratory experiments. What this will help us do, for example, in food additive and drug uh, development, preservative development, is to develop safer 
approaches to modifying our personal health and food quality. In the future, we'll see more of toxicogenomics, where we have DNA and RNA targets of toxins, understanding receptors, and the development of DNA, RNA targets of intoxication. As well, we'll see an increased use of toxicoprotonomics, where, in fact, uh, as we have developed an understanding of toxicology, many of the targets of intoxication end up being proteins. These proteins have dramatic impacts if, for example, they are hormones, receptors, or enzymes. We'll see the development of, a, of an emerging field. This is toxicometabonomics. Uh, this has to do with the dynamic multi-parameter metabolic responses. Uh, looking, for example, at uh, total metabolism or defined metabol metabolic uh, syndromes and how they might change in intoxication. We'll see new techniques, NMR, we'll see mass spectrometric, as well as imaging techniques that are used to examine metabolic responses, generalized and uh, subclinical metabolic responses to intoxication. We'll also see uh, in the frontier an increased understanding of the molecular biology of various cellular processes such as apoptosis. Uh, apoptosis is the chemical uh, stimulation of programmed cell death. Obviously, if we have a chemical that initiates that stimulation process, that cytokine stimulation, we have the ability to have this chain of events that leads to cellular damage, cellular injury that has to do with a different sort of relationship uh, than perhaps we have studied in past examinations of molecular toxicology. One of the uh, big changes that perhaps is incurring and is on the immediate frontier is the transition from the way we have done the quantitative relationship of dose and response, the development of no observed adverse effect levels, the lowest observed adverse effect levels, and transitioning to something referred to as a benchmark dose. Remember that in our approach that we have learned here in food toxicology, we have taken these Noels and Lowells that we have developed primarily from animal studies, and we multiply those by various uncertainty factors, such as the comparative toxicology factor, the fact that uh, we are not rats, and all of the other uncertainty factors about trying to quantify what we know and, more importantly, what we don't know about a potential for intoxication to come up with a reference dose that is used in managing human health. We can do that same sort of process in a different way with something referred to as the benchmark dose. Now, this benchmark dose is uh, perhaps a little bit of a new concept uh, for students uh, in an in introductory uh, course in toxicology. It is an alternative to these Noel and Lowell approaches that we've talked about as, that are the backbone of uh, dose response uh, assessment in toxicology. There are scientists that think that BMDs or benchmark doses are a more quantitative way of driving some of these regulatory levels uh, for various health effects that are assumed to have a nonlinear or a threshold-like low-dose response relationship. And remember that we have determined that the Noels and the Lowells in traditional dose response analysis on a sigmoidal curve are in fact discrete study doses. These are in fact the lowest dose in an animal trial that actually uh, did not or did uh, actually develop uh, an observed effect. 
um, what, when we use a benchmark dose, uh, we release ourselves from actually having to have data at that particular level. And as you'll see, these BMDs, or benchmark doses, actually allow us to model the dose response curve in the range of the observable data. And so there is a bit of statistical interpolation allowed in benchmark dose approach versus the traditional dose response. This uh, interpolation allows for an estimate of the dose that corresponds to a particular level of response. And so what we have is an agreement of this BMR, benchmark response, that uh, we have concluded is a significant response. This helps us as we start approaching, for example, subclinical effects. Maybe uh, cellular metabolism changes might be identified as a particular BMR, benchmark response, for the initial stages, the preclinical stages of intoxication. With those benchmark doses, we can also establish confidence limits, the BMDL, the lower confidence limit of the benchmark dose, in the same way in terms of establishing a window of uncertainty on the determination of a BMD. Now, the BMD approach can be used in the same way as we have done traditional uh, dose response modeling. We can use it for all types of chemical and physical agents and associated endpoints. There, this can be done regardless of the assumptions about low-dose linearity or non-linearity during this, this approach, and this has to do with uh, examining, for example, background responses at zero dose. Uh, this modeling is done in the observable range, and so we're not extrapolating out of the area of actual data. And typically, it's related to a response rate near the lower end of this observable dose range. And so this is good because quite often if we're looking for cellular impacts, uh, for example, uh, receptor activations, uh, background animals that are not dosed will have a certain degree of receptor activation, for example. We can look at benchmark doses as any change to that background level. For example, uh, in computing a benchmark uh, dose, we're going to first need to select a benchmark response or a group of responses. This can be collected in terms of a syndrome or a collection of potential uh, identifiable endpoints. Uh, we then will take a, and do a traditional dose response study where we calculate the dose and we uh, put that, uh, graph that against a particular response and we fit the data to that. There are other alternative fittings. We approach this from a statistical point of view of looking at a model, uh, a best fit uh, significantly, uh, statistically significant and robust model uh, for this particular type of data. Uh, we then uh, adopt a uh, confidence limit uh, for that particular benchmark dose assessment. We can use an example of uh, vinclozolin uh, which is a fungicide. It's a uh, general purpose fungicide. It's a spore inhibitor. It's used in many crops uh, in agriculture. It has had great concern in recent history uh, in terms of regulatory review uh, because of its potential as an endocrine disruptor. So we'll want to take a look at this particular compound as an example as a hormonally active substance in human health risk uh, uh, assessment. We know that this particular fungicide is an anti-androgen. Uh, uh, it's an anti-agonist. 
uh, for this. So uh, this is uh, estrogenic type compound. It has the potential to produce adverse effects when it's administered uh, during sexual differentiation in the fetus or around the time of puberty in the rat model. It can alter the sexual uh, functions and fitness in adult male rats. So in a particular study that we'll review here, we'll examine the exposure to this fungicide, vinclozolin, uh, around the puberty in terms of male reproductive tract and serum hormone levels. This uh, study, this rat study, uh, was calculated, um, doses were calculated for age uh, at, in terms of the endpoints, uh, in terms of the benchmark doses for uh, about six different endpoints. They included uh, prepucial uh, separation. This is separation of the prepuce from the gland's penis uh, in terms of sexual maturation of the penis. Uh, this is also for epididial uh, weight, seminal vesicle weight, ventral prostate weight, and serum concentrations of testosterone and luteinizing hormone. Uh, many of you have heard of luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone is the hormone that is used in uh, adult uh, f human female pregnancy tests. Uh, these uh, am I pregnant or not uh, urine tests uh, that are sold in drugstores are actually luteinizing hormone uh, detectors. Now, this hormone is synthesized and secreted by the pituitary gland. Uh, in the female, a uh, uh, surge in luteinizing hormone actually triggers, triggers uh, ovulation. Uh, this is also a hormone that is uh, found in males. Uh, it does uh, have an impact to stimulate the production of testosterone. Uh, it's more important and especially high levels of luteinizing hormone are associated with metabolic dysfunction in males. Now if we take a look at the data from this example study, this is a graph of the mean serum luteinizing hormone in nanograms per milliliter on this graph. And so here's the dose from 0 to 100 uh, nanograms per milliliter. And so this is one of the six endpoints in this particular uh, endocrine disruption study. And this is um, the um, mean response in terms of the concentration. Uh, this is the dose of the uh, fungicide. This is the concentration of the luteinizing hormone. You can see that uh, here's a background. This is the control here, um, here at this da particular data point. And as the dose is increased, you see that there is a response in terms of increase of serum LH. This dose response curve, which is called a Hill model, it's a statistical model for this type of data. You can see fairly wide uh, confidence limits in terms of this, and this is the best fit for this. This is a uh, blow up of the uh, important part, uh, the benchmark dose part of the curve. And what we're going to do in this particular uh, example is develop a benchmark dose that uh, is ex essentially expressed as the, um, a, a response that is increased from the change of the standard deviation equal to the standard deviation of the control group. So if the control group has a certain standard deviation, an increase in that standard deviation in that, uh, from that level uh, by an equivalent standard deviation is regarded under this particular definition as the benchmark dose. 
what you see here is in fact that this benchmark dose and as well the uh, lowest level uncertainty of that dose but the BMD is significantly below what would be regarded as the lowest observed adverse effect level and so there is an enhanced ability of benchmark doses to provide increased uh, uh, protection in terms of uh, toxicological assessment. If we take a look at the benchmark doses for all six endpoints in this particular study, you can see that the luteinizing hormone here appears at very low doses. And so this is, in terms of the pathway, this is a signaling hormone that actually increases uh, uh, it's a very sensitive benchmark uh, relative to serum testosterone. Serum testosterone levels are actually triggered by luteinizing hormone and the other physiological factors in terms of development of the testes, development of the penis in this rat model study uh, are actually clustered somewhat together up here in the dose range between, uh, especially when you regard these uncertainty limits here, they're somewhat clustered together and within each other's certainty. The outlier, if you will, in terms of the most sensitive aspect of endpoints is in fact uh, this luteinizing hormone. This gives you an idea that uh, the changes in this hormone level uh, over background at extraordinary low doses can be used in a risk assessment process. Now, in terms of uh, continuing some of the frontiers of uh, food toxicology, we'll have to have an increased understanding of the non-human antimicrobial usage and its impact on antimicrobial resistance. Uh, bad bugs uh, that will uh, decrease the efficacy of the various antimicrobial drugs that we have to combat human pathogenesis. We'll need increased uh, methods and better methods at safety evaluation of genetically modified foods. Um, there are some concerns that we are changing things, things perhaps that we are not looking for in terms of our assays. We need to identify those uh, on a relative risk basis and a comparison in terms of risk versus benefits. If in fact we are going to enhance the quality of the food system, enhance the uh, quantity of food available to developing nations, we need to be able to do this in a uh, logical, reasoned way in terms of monitoring the costs uh, versus those potential benefits. Those costs are in uh, enhanced safety or decreased safety of the food product. We'll have to look, for example, uh, at new approaches to GM foods uh, where, in fact, uh, we are looking not at trans-species genetics like putting fish proteins in potatoes, but perhaps looking at intraspecies transgenics where we take uh, the uh, biotech attributes, the genetic attributes of one of the members of that species and translate it into another member to enhance, for example, uh, its uh, uh, growth in certain types of uh, environmental conditions or its resistance to uh, insect infestation or, for instance, in its development in the regards to the potato of uh, the development of things like acrylamide uh, because of levels of naturally occurring products in the potato during the cooking process. We'll need as well to look at uh, uh, new approaches to modeling and understanding low-level exposure approaches 
we identified some of this, uh, uh, the challenges of these uh, in looking at the neurotoxic effects of methylmercury and also the toxic impacts uh, and estrogenic effects of low-level dioxin exposure. In terms of human health and risk assessment, we'll have to have an increased understanding of the biotoxins in uh, shellfish. Uh, we need to identify some of the maximum levels of some of the, the compounds that are relatively newly discovered in the past five years or so. Uh, look at newer and more efficient uh, analytical methods. Uh, have a better understanding of the geographic distribution of concern of these toxins and as well uh, some of their biotoxin forming phytoplankton and the response to human action and activities such as pollution and wastewater discharge to the development of these biotoxin-forming marine phytoplankton. We'll have to enhance and increase uh, the ability of mycotoxin prevention and control, and this is pretty much by understanding the dynamics of mycotoxin growth and development in certain types of food preservation and food processing uh, uh, processes. Uh, we'll need as well to uh, enhance our understanding and utilization of probabilistic risk assessment in food allergies so that we can enhance uh, uh, not only the safety of the food but enhance our understanding of the uncertainties associated with food allergy. A part of the background for this uh, has been enabled by our enhanced immune system knowledge that uh, perhaps in the past 15 years with the uh, advent of uh, disease syndrome as it challenged the immune system. We now have uh, an increased understanding of the immune system through research, using that in new knowledge to develop uh, new approaches to risk assessment for food allergy. Well, when we started this course, uh, we had some course goals for students uh, that were enrolled. Uh, I wanted to provide you with a broad foundation of knowledge about the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of toxicants in the human food chain. I wanted to help assist you in achieving a high level of understanding and some interpretive capacity in food toxicology. I wanted you as well to help uh, develop your critical thinking skills uh, about risks, risk communication, risk assessments, associated with foodborne toxicants. Uh, this is a challenge uh, in terms of uh, coming up with a, a sufficient curriculum for all levels and types of students in terms of students preparations and backgrounds. We hope that you have achieved uh, what you came uh, to this goal and this course for in terms of your own personal goals. I think we all have to reflect that uh, uh, education is about uh, changing the world, and in my context, it's about changing the world one student at a time. I hope uh, uh, that this course has, in fact, changed your world. I wish for you that uh, this journey uh, in your academic career has been uh, somewhat stimulated and fulfilled by taking this course that you, in fact, have uh, uh, taken one step closer to becoming uh, those reliable strangers that we talked about in the introductory uh, aspects of this course on the journey to a safe and nutritious food supply. With that, I thank you for your attendance in this course. It's been a joy to teach it. Uh, I welcome uh, your continued uh, communication with me. Uh, call me anytime. 
enjoy uh, the rest of the course in terms of the final submissions of the, the final exam and the final course uh, papers. Until the time we meet again, good luck to you all. Thank you very much.